Welcome to the Education Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Joe Tranquillo from Bucknell University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Joe Tranquillo. He is the Associate Provost for Transformative Teaching and Learning and a professor at biomedical engineering at Bucknell University. Joe, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be joining you. Uh, Joe, I, I have so much to learn um, uh, from you. I am really looking forward to this uh, conversation. Um, you and I had um, met just, uh, I wouldn't say a few years ago, but started working together at you know the Bucknell's um, uh, implementation of ePortfolios um, maybe a couple years ago now. Am I yeah, right? yeah, I think it was a few years ago that we started to uh, started to chat. Yep, yep. And um, through that experience, I feel like every time I meet with you, and we've met a lot of times, every time I meet with you, I learn something completely new about you. So <laughs> that's fascinating because every time it's like some hidden talent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about? Um, uh, what you do as the Associate Provost for Transformative Teaching and Learning. What does that mean? I think we got the professor part sure. about biomedical engineering, but like, what does an Associate Provost for Transformative Teaching and Learning mean at Bucknell University? Yeah, great question. When someone else f- figures it out, let me know. Um, I, I'm, the, I'm the first person in this role, and so I think um, I get to be a little bit entrepreneurial with it, um, kind of scope out what it is. There's been a long history of this position kind of being proposed, and there have been different variations of it. Um, so I'm totally honored to be the first person in it. But it means that I'm I'm getting to invent pieces of it. Um, I think about this as there's kind of a management e piece of it that is really about overseeing certain groups, hopefully helping them work more closely together. Um, the whole idea of this position was around student success and thriving. Um, there's a lot of other pieces underneath that, um, such as retention numbers and grad numbers and things of that sort. Um, but really broadly, it was about student success, student thriving. So there are a variety of groups who are already doing that work. And as the person sort of overseeing those groups, the new management component of this position is how do you get them to work together um, to do some things more collaboratively on a little bit of a larger scale. But then the part that really excites me is the potential for some um, leadership pieces where I get to build some new things. I get to maybe, um, you know, uncover some things that haven't been done in the past. Um, Both are interesting to me, but I, you know, my heart is often in the, uh, you know, what can we do that's a little bit new together, that's experimental, where we really don't know where it's going to end up. And so it's a, a, you know, a bit of an adventure along the way. Well, you, you're you very humble by nature, but you also just got that spark of a curious, you know, <laughs> 
a curious learner um, at heart. I, I that's why I well really we we like we all movie. we all should be right. I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is the this is this is what makes life fun, right? Is when you're when you're curious about stuff and you can see even in the smallest things something that you can learn from. And you know, I mean, I have I have my you know my my masks here, right? And it's an exercise that I I actually do with my students a lot of times. You, know, you pick up a common object and and say. Um, if you were going to create an entire course about the object, right, that object, um, it doesn't have to be an object, it could be an idea or anything too, uh, what would it have in it? And students often look at you like, you know, are you nuts? Like, how could you make an entire course about, right, you know, masks, right, Um, or spoons or whatever, right? It doesn't matter what, you know, a pen. Um, And it's amazing because after 30 seconds of, of being stuck, they very often go, oh, wow, yeah, you know, we could talk about the history of it, or we could talk about how they're made, or we could talk about why the elastics are the sizes they are, or the why did they choose this, and why is there, why is there stuff printed on the ends, and, you know, why is there this, why is there that? Um, and they very quickly realize that, yeah, it would be really easy to create a course, and they start thinking about um, – who would be guest speakers and what the assignments would be, right? They all of a sudden it, it kind of blossoms, and over the course of five minutes, they have a whole course um, specked out. And I've even had a couple of groups say, "You know, we don't think this is a course. We think this could be a whole minor, right? This could be a whole thing." It's like, <laughs> yes, you get it, right? You know, you yeah. get it. It's to say you can take sometimes the simplest things and be curious about them. So, um, yeah, I, you know, you obviously don't have time to approach every single thing around you in that way, but. Um, yeah, it, it does make life fun when you can do that. Well, that's, that's, um, I know that, that, you know, for listeners right now, they're like, well, what, what are we going to be starting about courses on, on spoons and masks? <laughs> but I actually wanted to just say how I'm starting to link these patterns together. You are, in fact, exactly the type of people that always are going to be talking about uh, frameworks and systems and ways of approaching things, approaching, you know, the ways of thinking about things. And I think mm-hmm. it is that that makes you successful in being in this role that, you know, that has been sort of um, uh, newly created at, at Bucknell. Um, can you tell us a little bit about just your background? Because you obviously, you're a professor of biomedical engineering, but you also have a, a lot of other wide range of interests. You know, you you know, tell us about that. Tell us about the school. Tell us about sure. all of those types of things that you you get your hands into. Yeah, I I think um, it's one of the reasons, frankly, why I wanted to come to Bucknell was so that I could continue pursuing some things that might be unusual for a professor, or in some cases, especially a biomedical engineering professor. Kind of write the the stereotype of what you would think of as being someone in biomedical engineering. Um, Again, I don't even exactly know where to start with this, so I'll I'll start somewhere and we can build out from there. Uh, let's see. Um, through middle school and high school, I honestly was thinking I was going to be a musician. I was totally into jazz, jazz trumpet, you know, all the way. Was playing, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours sometimes a day. Um, you know, the classic thing you'd think of of someone who wants to go off into a into a career in music. Uh, got into the Berkeley School of Music, went to the audition, made it through the audition, and realized during the audition that this is making me kind of sick. <laughs> I, I, you know, just not not even physically sick because I had auditioned for things before, but just a realization of do I really want to do this as a career? And um, you know, there's kind of a, a, a Jesuit old Jesuit thing that's out there of you know what what are you good at. 
um, what do you love and what does the world need? And your career should probably be something where you can say, you know, yes to all three of those things. Again, you'd mentioned the frameworks, right? There's, there's, a, there's one framework, right, of kind of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that while I loved it and I was good at it, it, it was not what I thought I had to really offer the world. And the more I thought about it, I wasn't sure that I would love it as a career either. So deferred that, decided to go to a liberal arts school, was thinking I was going to go into philosophy, uh, took a couple philosophy courses. And unfortunately, as so often happens, my first couple of professors were less than inspiring. Um, and so I started taking physics classes and those lit me up and then somehow got sucked into engineering. So you, you can see sort of the, yeah. the, uh, the, 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 the slope, some might call it a downward slope um, to, to end up um, in engineering. But I think that that, that creative piece that was there from jazz improv and the idea of being able to again look at a mask and pull out all of the pieces that was kind of a you know a piece of philosophy right how can you look at a mask in a different way or look at it for what it what it represents um those are pieces that i kind of pulled along with me and so when i became an engineer they were things that i naturally brought with me Um, and they led to all sorts of other pieces. I won't go into the other things, but I ended up getting into like improv dance and Aikido and a number of other different, um, pursuits. By the way, I know you're a, you're, you're an artist, you're a designer. Um, I am, I, I haven't seen your work yet, but I, I know it'll be better than mine because I can draw stick figures and things like that. So, um, but yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, what lenses and ideas are you adding? And again, it makes the world a richer place. Yeah, I think that it it is you're right, and that you know that it's it's fascinating for me to hear about your pursuit in in music to the level of you know essentially you know could have been a professional musician, um, and uh, but you know at some point started to sort of do this sort of thinking about like is it something that I want to do and how, how is that going to, how do I see that vision as being a, uh, some sense of changing the world? Now, fast forward to today, I think that in 2022 students coming to, to colleges today are often looking for that, are looking for maybe it's, maybe they haven't figured it out. Maybe they have figured it out. Maybe they have some kind of, you know, maybe they have several options or several ideas, but they are seeking very much so a path and a space to to sort of um, uh, uh, help make make those you know potentially critical decisions on what am I going to be and how am I going to be useful to this world. And I want to say a little bit more so than um, you know, even if we go back let's say 20 years ago um, because that was when I was, <laughs> I felt like, you know, there was a big part of it was how do you pay rent? Um, yep. And how do you not having to go back to live with your parents? <laughs> that, was, that was like a <laughs> yeah, huge yeah, factor, exactly. you know? Uh, but today I think that it's, it's a little bit, it's changed a little bit, which I, 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 really I, like. I, yeah. I, I do. I think it's, it's changed. And I think something that is, I don't want to say it's at the core of it, but I think it's a piece of it is 
you know, at least in the in the states, um, you know, we pride ourselves on being very independent, right? You know, the rugged individualist, all these, right? We can go back through the history of, um, you know, this idea of holding up the concept of the individual. I, I think a lot of where the I want to make lots of money for me, and I want to have a great job for me, and I want to have right like a lot of that was for me, and you know it it wasn't it wasn't entirely myopic. You know you would talk to folks of our generation and some past generations; they wanted to do it for a family as well. But the the circle of influence, and if you continue to ask why, right, you know five times, you know why do you want to be an investment banker, right? You know they they would get to some point where they would say, well, you know I I want a comfortable life for me and my family, right, or something like that, and so the the scope of what they, of, of why they were going to invest a significant amount of time and energy into something was, was very much still in keeping with that individualistic mindset. I, I, I sense, and it's not, it's obviously not everyone they're doing, you know, it's a diverse population in terms of their mindsets, but I sense that there's more and more younger folks. And I have two kids who are, you know, in, in this generation, they are thinking more interdependently. Um, and, you know, again, we could get into mm-hmm. East and Western yep. philosophies and ideas and concepts, but I, I do think that there is on the rise a more interdependent um, way of thinking. And I want to want to dissect that out just a little bit, because I think in our generation, it was about globalization and it was about, you know, being intercultural, things like that. But even that still had an, an individualistic undercurrent to sure. it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, there there was, you know, you were you were still wanting to do it, do that because the world was becoming more international. And so it behooved you to actually right do that. Right. I, I think this, and I'm, again, this is maybe just me being hopeful, um, that we are getting a generation of students who are thinking in more interdependent ways. Um, and what this leads to is right, caring about a wider sphere of what they care about, where they're probably still at the center, right? You know, I deal with college students. They're 18 to 22 by and large. Um, They they are still individualistic um, and still about themselves, but they want that sphere around them, that sphere of influence to be far wider um, and expanding over the course of their life and their career. Um, And it leads to them caring about things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals and and other, you know, huge challenges that... Mm -hmm aren't specific to any one particular region. Their, their, their span is the entire globe. Well, I mean, that doesn't that really sort of um, lead us to, or maybe should lead you to think, talk a little bit about, you know, what does a modern sort of curriculum look like? I mean, you are, in fact, you know, your role is for transformative teaching and learning. Right. So, what is the, the, what is the, the sort of the a new pedagogy, or let's call it, you know, what's an up to date pedagogy in two thousand twenty two, mm-hmm. or a curriculum, uh, look like for for students? Um, right. You know, like there's, and maybe like there's always going to be, you know, content specific things, right? So, so sure. domain specific things, like whether it's in. Uh, uh, bio, bioengineering or in computer engineering versus in, you know, art and design, right? Uh, right? But there's something, it feels like, you know, more going on in the modern curriculum now mm-hmm. um, that that sort of supersede um, 
or that encapsulates or that maybe um, that all these different domains and, and uh, uh, um, um, subject areas embraces in addition to what's, you know, just native to the, to the study itself. Sure. Yeah. I, I think, you know, obviously there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, declare up front, I'm a, I'm a liberal arts person, you know, through, through and through, despite having the, you know, the biomedical engineering um, title. Uh, it's again, one of the reasons. that to us, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of the reasons why, again, I, I wanted to be at a place like Bucknell was, you yeah. know, be an engineer, but, but still retain yeah. that, that liberal arts nature. And, and I think one of the difficulties is that the definition of the liberal arts, and, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole history of it, but it's, it's changed and it's morphed. And what folks have considered the liberal arts has changed over time. Um, and it's not that one definition or theme or whatever has been is right or wrong, but I do think that going back to the why, right? You know, what what is it that's important about being a liberally educated citizen of right the world? And and obviously, you know, just to clarify for anyone who's listening, um, when when you say liberal arts, you don't mean liberal politically. Um, this is this is the right, you know, because that, that's a big misconception sometimes is that um, you know, this is about like creating folks who are going to be liberals, right? It it's not. It's meant to be a a, a mindset that you actually take with you. And um Typically, what this has been is how do you have habits of mind and practices um, that will help you be at a a great citizen, right? A, not just a good citizen, but a great mm-hmm. citizen. And we can, you know, we don't need to go into citizenship or anything like that, right? But it, it's it's not the mm-hmm. passive definition of just I go and vote and all of that. How do I actually give back in some way? Right. And the way I would think of it and sort of the origins of it was what are the skills and tools and mindsets that you need to do that, to be a a true great citizen of the world? And what that has been changes over time, right? I mean, the the world is changing. The world obviously has been changing over several hundred years. I mean, it's it's changed in the last two years. Um, And so I think this idea that being an educated citizen of the world is going to be some static thing is a complete fallacy. It, it by nature should change. Um, then you get down to, okay, well then what are those things? What are, what are the things that would allow you to become a liberally educated citizen? Um, and somewhere, and this is going to be dangerous for me to say as somebody who's going to label me as an engineer, somewhere, (laughs) somewhere along the lines. And I don't know exactly when it was, um, you know, there are different markers of it. You could say a hundred years ago, 80 years ago, 50 years ago, certain disciplines took up the mantle of we, we are the things that, that are at the center of this and at the core. And that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I actually wouldn't, wouldn't even debate that. And, you know, they're typically the humanities and the arts, um, you know, pieces of the natural sciences and math. Um, but we also shed some things. So we shed physical education, right? That used to be a core component of the of the liberal arts, and it was there because at the time it was there, it was something you you needed to be to be a, a productive citizen mm-hmm. in the world. Right. Um, when it wasn't, we we kind of shed it. So uh, this is a long roundabout way to to set up the I think the answer or what I think maybe an answer would be to your question, and that is today, twenty twenty two. What, what are those things? You know, what is that? And um, I can tell you my institution, like lots of institutions, has a mission statement. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, learning objectives. We have all those other things. And um, the problem is that 
you mentioned frameworks earlier. They're not easy frameworks to pick up and use out in real situations. They're either too big and too broad, right? You know, some statements with a bunch of words like many mission statements that just sound great, or they're at the level of granularity of these learning objectives, which have everything in the kitchen sink in them. You know, you're going to be a creative and curious explorer of blah, 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 right? You know, and, and then you move on to the second one, right? And it's all about, right? So they're, they're, they, they become, they get to the point where they're hard to actually work with in any operational way. Um, before I reveal kind of a thought on what a framework could be, do you, do you have, do you want to? Any, respond to any of that because I know there was a lot there. No, no, no. I please keep going. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> okay. I, I I do think though that um, when you are talking about um, the 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 framework, uh, there is probably some 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 good um, uh, reference to what's happened in businesses in the last you know ten twenty sure. years as well. You know, and deriving to core values and, you know, things like that. But please keep going. Absolutely. And I want to, I think, you know, I'll I'll emphasize that point in a minute. Um, But one thing I do want to clarify is that I think there are a number of schools that don't identify as a traditional liberal arts school. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's it's a you could be the most polytechnic school of polytechnic schools, or could be a music school, or could be a whatever, right? It doesn't matter. Um, these are still skills that you would need to contribute. So, if you are in, in you know, a musician and you're going to be a performer, having some of the traditional liberal arts skills is going to help you be a, a, a better performer. So, even if it's not a liberal arts school, they'll they'll help. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to that idea of the the values, I think you're you are one hundred percent right on that traditionally companies have their you know their big high level statement that they have, and they do have sub goals, but they have a you know a couple of pillars, three, four, sometimes they're words, sometimes they're phrases, sometimes some companies have only one right there's like one central pillar of what they do that helps guide their thinking, and when they're about to take on anything new it gets passed through those those lenses as a kind of a check to make sure that this fits with the intentions. So um, I, I have I have three of them, and this was by looking at our strategic plans and all of these other things that these documents that um, have guidance. The, the first one was um, genuine caring for other people, genuine deep caring for other people. And this is not about the a whole group. It's literally one-on-one. You're meeting another person, maybe two, possibly. Um, but these, the reason for calling it that is there are touches of empathy, the concepts of empathy. Um, there's the ideas of having and building and sustaining relational connections with people, not transactional connections. Um, you know, if you want to go philosophical on it, right? You know, mm-hmm. this is this is Kant's categorical imperative, right? Not not using other people as a means to your end. So again, there's there's lots of components to this that. Yes, you could put learning objectives there and you could put all sorts of fancy terms that folks would use um, around it in intercultural humility, right? So there's lots of buzzwords that we have, but they all to some degree are pointing to this idea of how do you treat another person as a person? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one piece. The second piece is how can you be a good steward of all of the environments that you inhabit? 
And what I mean by that is, you know, if you want to just start with your family level, that that's fine. That's one of the environments you ha- inhabit. But if you're a student, so is your residence hall, and so is your calculus class, and so is your, um, you know, your tennis club, and right. So those are all all environments that you inhabit. But you're also often part of some sort of larger community, right? Your university or the city that you're in. And you can keep expanding that out to the point where you're all the way up to the level of the entire world. And again, there's lots of buzzwords in, in, you know, embedded in here, community engagement. You can talk about the Anthropocene, right? All of that. Those are all getting at different levels of these environments. The dilemma, but also the, the, um, the part that is, is where the work needs to be done is how do you simultaneously be good, a good steward of all of these environments? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where things get to be tricky. And it's where a lot of times issues come up is, well, I could do something that's great for my family, but it may not be so good for my community, right? How do you actually think through that? And the idea is, okay, well, you need some tools, you need some ideas and frameworks to help you think through those, those difficult um, questions and come up with your own decision. And, you know, again, we can get into some ideas of what some of those are if we want to dig into that more. But the third piece is, is constantly investing in yourself. And here, again, staying away from the buzzwords necessarily of lifelong learning. And, you know, I know that that's, that's been a buzzword for a long time. It, it is that, but it, it's more than that. It, it's, it's understanding what excites you, um, what's going to fire you up, how you're going to better understand who you are. So again, this brings up issues of identity. And if we wanted to get into intersectionality, right? So there's lots of different pieces in that um, continually investing in yourself. The thing at the center, if you imagine these as sort of three spheres that are kind of out there, the thing in the center that I think unites them is purpose. And what is your purpose? And operationally, the way this would work, with, especially with 18 to 22 year olds or just mm-hmm. anyone probably, is you probably come in with a sense of purpose, which helps fuel your work in those three places, right? Genuine care for others, being a good steward of your environment, um, continuous investment in yourself. But in doing that work, you may re envision, redefine, expand, change your purpose. So there's a push and pull between those three pillars and what you imagine your purpose to be um, that helps motivate you to go deeper. So I, I think the piece of this that, again, goes deeper pedagogically is how do we give students the tools that they need to go deeper in each of these areas? And again, because because I'm a systems person and you know have an engineering training, I think about models, right? You know, folks creating models, and in this case, they're they're mental conceptual models. Each one of those three things you can attach model building to. When it comes to the individual, it's a or sorry, the the genuine caring for others. The model that you're building is how do you create a model of another person? And again, you can call that empathy if you want, but through our, like the two of our conversations, without even really knowing it, I've been creating a model of you, right? You know, who, who is Jeff, right? You know, who, who is he? What, what makes him tick? How does he work? Right. So that when I, when I, when I work with you and we have conversations, it allows me to have that relational connection with you. And the only way I can really do that is to have some sense of who you are. Um, Otherwise I'm talking to somebody else. Um, and the same thing goes for the good steward of an environment. To be a good steward, you have to have some good 
internal model of those environments, um, a good model of the world around you. And again, we can attach that to why are you taking these courses about, you know, whatever you name your favorite course. Well, some of those courses are going to be about you have building a much richer and more interconnected model of the world. And then we get to the, to the third piece, which is the, you know, continuous investment in yourself. Well, the only way you can really do that is to have a pretty good model of who you are um, and <laughs> right. where you are and right, you know, where you might be going. So I, again, I'm going to stop there and, and just see if you have any, any follow-ups. I think this is fantastic. And, you know, for that, in that last, I mean, there's so much that you had mentioned that I, I just love this, by the way. So for and very, the very last thing that you said was about, you know, investing in yourself and having the model of who you are. And that in fact is a lot of, you know, and you and I talk a lot about reflection and, mm -hmm. you know, in e-portfolios, but also just in learning in general, right? Um, uh, I find that to be a wonderful way to, to reshape that lens. Um, because sometimes I also even find that um, when talking to people and they say, well, I should reflect but, the, but when it comes to the the the, the nitty gritty of doing the reflection, though, mm -hmm. sometimes is and we will talk a little bit more about this because you are an expert at this. But <laughs> but I also find it, you know, like by changing the lens into invest in yourself, create mm -hmm. a model of yourself, and so that you can understand better, you know, how to invest in yourself and in what areas are you, you know, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, benefiting from it and so on. And that in some really interesting ways is a whole different ways of getting someone to be reflective about their learning. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think, um, you know, just to pick up on that last piece there, I, I think we have a tendency and I say we broadly, not, not just students. This is, I think everyone yeah, in general sure. to have this idea that reflection is something that you probably should do but you won't because it takes time away from the doing, right? The, the actual action part of it. And the action part of it feels more productive. It feels like you're moving forward. Whereas the reflection part kind of feels like, eh, I'm sort of stalled and I'm not really doing anything. Um, there's obviously tons of learning theory out there about, you know, the, the role and the importance of having reflective moments mm -hmm. um, to stop and, you know, the cynical part of me would say, without that, you're just an automaton, right? An automaton is something that just mindly does things, right? And right. and and I think if you're going to have any long-term plans, if you're going to have any long-term direction um, in just about anything, there has to be reflection built in in some fashion. Now, some of the most powerful learners, I, I think, don't even realize that they're reflecting. They don't m realize that how much reflection is a part of their life. They're just not carving out dedicated time to do it. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't want the perception to be that reflection is sitting down with your journal, right. And in journaling or speaking into a recorder, I think there's lots and lots and lots of forms of reflection that can take place. Um, a, couple of just really brief things. And, and if, if you don't want to get into reflection now, we, we don't have to, we could save it for later. It's up to you. No, no, no. Let, let's talk about it. I okay. was going to bring up, um, I, I said that, you know, I, a lot of people obviously are listening to this on an audio podcast, but what I'm holding up on my, on my camera here <laughs> is, 
it's a box. Okay, this is a, a box, maybe the size of maybe two decks of cards, about the thickness of a deck of card. And it sets reflection collection. And in it are is um, and in fact a big stack of cards. Um, now I you actually created this reflex, reflection collection. You want to tell us a little bit about this? And uh, by the way, in these education scholar conversation, we never sell any products. I'm not selling this product, but I, 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 I know that you created this. I loved it so much. I bought, I bought this, and I have a stack of cards here. It's right here on my desk. It has not left my desk because I look at it all the time. Um, want to tell tell us a little bit about that because I think your yeah. you have an incredible mind. In in looking at something in a, a thousand different ways, and every time you look at it again, I think you come up with a couple more ways of doing so. Well, um, I, yeah. I I think you've just you've just hit on one of the one of the great parts of reflection, right? And a, a theme of what we've been talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Is how can you look at the same thing and get something different out of it each time? Um, so again, you know, so far, if there's a theme to our conversation, that 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 might be it. And I'm totally <laughs> flattered that you actually have the box on your desk. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I think I have mine on my desk somewhere. Um, it's probably under my desk at this point. So you're you're doing better than I am. Um, I I just I, I want to back up and say the the origin of this. And again, there it's hard to pick a particular origin. Was I wanted reflection for my students to be fun. I wanted it to be things that would be sticky, things that they would remember later, mm -hmm. that it wouldn't just be, I want you to reflect on where the material that we did today might be useful out in the real world. That's fine. That will get them reflect. You know, I've just taught you about some concept in thermodynamics, you know, find something that would, would attach to that. And that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that, that, you know, for the instructors out there, please do that. It's great. What I wanted to do with these cards was to say reflection can be a part of, of your life, just your general learning patterns in general, and that it's a muscle. And I know that that's, that's an overused you know, metaphor that because mm -hmm. we talk about lots of things being a muscle. Mm -hmm. um, but I really do think that reflection is a muscle. You get better at it the, the more you do it. And like most things you practice, and you know you can imagine a tennis swing or kicking a soccer ball or whatever, when you do it for the first couple of times, it's very conscious. It has to be intentional. It doesn't feel natural or normal in any way, shape, or form. You have to kind of force yourself to do it and practice it over and over and over again. But something awesome happens in practicing that that skill or that that muscle. And that is, it becomes kind of embedded in you and you just begin doing it and you don't even realize you're doing it. You don't have to think about it anymore. It just happens. It's a part of your life. This is, so, by the way, just a reminder, this is Joe, the jazz improv musician, <laughs> sitting right there. Oh, absolutely, right? And I mean, yeah. you know, to, to, to follow that thread a minute, I mean, that that's why as any sort of musician or artist, especially, you know, performance folks, um, why you spend so much time practicing and practicing and practicing mm -hmm. and practicing so that by the time you actually get to the performance – you're not thinking about the lick anymore or the run anymore or the whatever, right? You're, you're able to actually be in the moment. 
and it and it and it just comes out. And you know, you talk to any again, not not to go off on too many tangents, but um, Chiksan Mahai, you know, psychologist, mm-hmm. um, talks yeah. about the flow experience, right? And in many cases, that's he doesn't quite say it this way, but the folks who achieve that flow experience are usually the ones that have they're so adept at what they're doing that they can go on autopilot and they're just they're literally living in the moment and just doing it so what these reflection cards were meant to do was to give students some fun exercises that they can do that would show them how reflection can become a part of their everyday life and so it's a series of bunch of exercises most of them only take five ten maybe 15 minutes uh just to give an example of one of them it was um and i'll probably get this wrong you have the cards in front of you um i'm gonna what, check on you what, yeah 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 you have to check isn't this terrible right it's like citing yourself i'm gonna plagiarize myself now that that's you know that's terrible right um you know one of them is about is about blueprinting a house but yep. this house is gonna have rooms that represent who you are so you get to actually right like draw out on a piece of paper what mm-hmm. would a house be if it was representing you and what rooms would there be and how big would they be and mm-hmm. what would be which rooms would be next to which rooms and then you can go deeper and begin asking like where's the front door to this house so when someone first meets you you know what room would they normally come into and you can get right so it's kind of building on this metaphor and it, it's fun in class to students begin to get it like oh well houses also have windows so like where, where would there be a window in this house? Like where yeah. could someone kind of peer in and see, maybe not stand in the room with me, but they can kind of get a little glimpse of it. And so again, it, it, it it's meant to be an interesting, unique exercise that that's not sit down and write me a journal entry. Again, perfectly fine exercise, but it's getting them to do something interesting. And what naturally happens, which is the most fun part about all of these is I get emails from students afterward all the time saying, oh, I show this to my hallmates. And then like, we, we did it. Or I did this with my roommate. Like, you <laughs> know, awesome. we realized that like, you know, we, we have like, we have none of our rooms are in common, but we have this one room that was in common. Then we had this great discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yes, that discussion was fun that you had with your roommate, mm-hmm. but it was you exercising your subconscious reflective skill. And, and I think that's the, that's kind of the deeper reason and rationale underlying the, the cards. Um, the other part was to use them um, as an advisor. So mm-hmm. uh, we've given these actually out to a number of advisors to, in some sense, almost prescribe cards mm-hmm. to students. So you meet a student and they say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work my way through this or work right. my way through that. And you can send them off with two or three cards and say, you know, next time we meet, I'd, yeah. I'd love to chat about this. So it gives them a little bit of something to, to, to come back with. I, I really think this is lovely. I mean, in, I feel like that in the, um, you know, I have gone, gone to countless, you know, conferences that um, a lot of people talk about reflection and, I always find that there is a um, there's a desire. I think everyone knows it doesn't exist, but there's a desire <laughs> to say, "What's our silver bullet? What's that one prompt that you know, right, wants right. to reflect?" And everyone knows well, it doesn't really work like that, right? Right. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, then there's anecdotes of, "Hey, that's a good way to ask this." this is good. But what you've done that I love is that you create different models. See, I'm learning, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> you're creating different models um, of 
that that takes you out of what you normally do. Right. Such as if you're not an architect, I now you to think like one. You have one that's about a painter. Yep. Right? You can see where all my favorites are because obviously. Oh yeah, you're you're going right for the all the arts ones. Yeah, all the arts <laughs> ones. Um, you have forty of them. Yep. And you know what? Which one I actually really like, and I just think it's. So oh yeah, now now I'm curious. I think poetic. It's called slow motion. Ah. Um, I love it. I'm going to read this. Is, is is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Description. There are many actions that have become so habitual that we speed through them. In fact, you probably no longer consciously think about them anymore. Yet slowing down and de deconstructing a simple action can be a powerful form of meditation and can reveal deep patterns about who you are. Um, and then you have an activity that, you know, sort of, you know, goes with it. To me, these are just really smart way for you to just get out of the rut. You know, mm -hmm. it reminds me of, um, I, th I think it was, we didn't talk about D school yet, but oh, yeah. it reminds me a little bit of, um, uh, um, I think it was also a deck of cards that designers, yep. industrial designers, and I think it was actually IDEO that came up with this, yep. um, that, you know, people that were behind the D school. Um, and, and I remember doing this as a design student. Um, and I remember drawing a card and it would say, whatever object that you're doing, um, pretend you're the object and talk about your day. Right. And you have to go into like this improv mode where you go, okay, <laughs> I'm a spoon. This is where I started during the, you know, I saw, I saw the, I saw light when the drawer opened, opened right. and you have to kind of like go through with it. <laughs> but what it does is that it allows you to see the world in in a different perspective, in different right. lens, and through different different ways, and sometimes nothing comes about that mm -hmm. you know about about it, and you just kind of have to keep going. But sometimes you discover things that you just um, sort of you know it changes how you think about the world. Yep. So I something you said there just just uh, pinged something in my head, and I and I use the word ping on purpose for the uh -huh. the folks who are old school, uh, you know Unix programmer type folks because my my whole thesis was almost all computer modeling, um, so we don't need to get into all that unless unless you <laughs> my guess is your listeners don't don't want to know about my geeky sitting in windowless <laughs> rooms coding for supercomputers, um, but but I an analogy that I really love is. There, in a lot of supercomputers, high-end computers, there's, or at least used to be, a place that there was called the scratch space, right? It was kind of the place where all the overflow and all the extra stuff just kind of got got pushed aside. And you'd put it there because you didn't you didn't quite know what to do with it, or it was kind of extra, or you might need it later, but you're not really sure, right? Um, it was it was like the junk drawer in your kitchen, right? You know, just you, everything goes in that drawer. Um, I think we all have that to some degree <laughs> mentally mm -hmm. and um, it, it's interconnected with other things, but those are all the pieces that you're unsure about, right? The, the mental versions, you're not quite sure what to do with them. So just, just stick them in the junk drawer, the mental junk drawer. Mm -hmm. What's really fun to see is how much these kind of simple exercises often activate something that's been sitting in someone's junk drawer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's useful, drawer. yeah, sure. Yeah, 
for a long time and all of a yeah. sudden they go, wow, like, you know, I never, I never realized that that was this or that. Or, you know, if, if you go to the blueprint model, let's say, you know, it's not a main room. It's more like a closet, right? You know, it's something kind of over there and, and, it, and it's worth looking at every once in a while because there, there's, there's some stuff in there that, that might be interesting or useful or give me a little bit more insight. Um, so again, I, I, I've found that, that often the habit of reflection, mm-hmm. it becomes a habit at first, but you at first only apply it to the things that are those, if we keep going with this analogy, the main rooms right? You know, who am I? What's my career going to be? Um, you know, what am I learning right in the moment? You apply them to the things that are, that are conscious and, and top of mind. Um, but that it also opens up the possibility that every once in a while, something from the junk drawer comes out and, and rather than just let it pass by and stick it back in the drawer, you go, Hmm, like, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I want to pull that out. I want to look at that as an object and look at it, like you said, through a variety of different lenses, may not take long, but if it's a habit, if it's a skill you've gotten, it doesn't take long and it may just happen unconsciously. So I, I've, I've seen, and this is not necessarily even a personality type. I've seen lots of different folks, introvert, extrovert, folks who love organization, right? You know, very rigid versus folks that are like super uber creative that, that, that kind of reflection can be a very balancing piece for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows the creative folks to, you know, they've kind of stuffed the organizational part of them maybe in the junk drawer and it allows them to pull it out and, and, and look at it a little yeah. bit more. Um, so it, again, and same thing for the organizational folks, it's a, there's probably a creative piece in there that they've kind of said like, yeah, no, 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 that's not me. I'm going to stick it in the junk drawer, but it gives them the opportunity to take it out and, and, and rethink about it for a bit. Um, I've done that myself. I think, you know, we've talked about jazz improv and dance improv and right, you know, this kind of improv nature. And that, that is me for sure. But over time I've learned that I, I, I actually have some pretty powerful organizational skills that I can use to balance Mm -hmm. the creative side of me. Um, And frankly, to some degree, those are the tools now in my current job that I probably use more often, even though they don't feel quite as comfortable. This concludes part one of our conversation with Joe Tranquillo from Bucknell University. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Jeff Yan and Drew Albanicius. Thanks for listening.